When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. For this episode of Hidden Histories, I spoke to Sarah Goldsmith all about the Grand Tour. The Grand Tour was a rite of passage for mostly young men that took place in the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, sort of like a gap year that many young people choose to take today. We talk about art, adventure, danger and war and how all of these were connected in order to achieve the full experience in Europe. We can still see the impact of the Grand Tour in art, personal collections, and even the architecture that surrounds us. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Sarah Goldsmith, welcome to Hidden Histories. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, talking about something that I think is incredibly fascinating. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. Okay, so we're going to talk about the Grand Tour. So this was something that happened in the 17th and 18th century with fairly sort of like I'd say young people being kind of around the kind of late teens age would you say would you think it's fair enough to say that this is a kind of 18th 17th 18th century version of a gap year yeah I was thinking about this actually this morning so yes like you say most grand tourists in the 18th century they're they're young um they're from wealthy backgrounds they're often aristocracy or gentry and yeah they're normally traveling late teens and early 20s which very much fits that demographic of the gap year. And uh, a lot of people made the comparison. And absolutely, uh, in many ways, the gap year is the kind of distant descendant of the Grand Tour. It was all about travelling for educational purposes, becoming an adult, experiencing the world and and testing yourself against the world. And often the Grand Tour would normally take place after school or after university and the gap year takes place at a similar time. I guess what's interesting is the way in which the gap year is different as well, though. When we think about the places that people tend to go to in a gap year, often it's more uh, informed by perhaps past colonial environments. Uh, So people go to Africa or they choose to go to Australia uh, rather than Europe. And there's also an element of self-discovery uh, in a way that doesn't quite match up with the Grand Tour. The Grand Tour is all about taking one's place in the world and becoming a, a jewel in the in the running of the country, whereas I think a lot of gap year students now would go to find themselves, wouldn't they? And that philanthropic element as well, which I know is something that's hotly debated um, in terms of the gap year, you do not get that element in the Grand Tour. There is no philanthropic <laughs> element uh, going on in there. So, so yes, very much the descendant of, but changed in interesting ways. And I suppose, in a way, it was, I think, probably more educational than what sort of gap years and things are are today. Because am I, am I right in saying that there was an element of studying and collecting 
which as we know now is not always a good thing the environment that they found themselves in yeah, so um, I think a lot of gap year students would be horrified at how much studying happens during the Grand Tour. Quite often they would travel with a tutor who acts as an ad hoc guardian. They would be pursuing a course of studies with the tutor, uh, often ones that would last uh, the entire day. They'd be attending sometimes universities, they'd move around some of the top universities in Europe, and also top academies, which were kind of finishing schools for young gentlemen. So considerable amount of, of learning and and finishing off one's education yeah so like cultural training I have this vision in my head of a group of young people sort of sketching um Michelangelo sculptures was it was it that sort of was it a little bit like that it really varies where, uh, depending which country you're on, what your education would be focused on. So whilst they're in Italy, um, the focus is very much on architecture, on um, ruins, on learning aesthetics, being able to appreciate art. So they would be taken around by um, by tour guides, uh, sometimes very, very intensive. Um, often when you read the letters and diaries in Rome, it's just a whirlwind of going from site to site to site and in the heat as well with three layers of clothes not at all dressed for uh, warm weather so they often get quite grumpy <laughs> at points um, or quite overwhelmed and um, yes uh, some of them on absolutely would be undertaking drawing and measurements and those kind of antiquarian practices they would sometimes bring along their own artists as well to uh, to do that for them or to uh, produce works that they then take back home alongside the wider collecting and then of course you've got a lot of architects and artists themselves getting the opportunity to go out to Italy for that kind of training they um, would be sponsored by by the aristocracy as patrons yeah, yeah I was going to say there were some quite famous um, artists that were very invested in that idea of the of the grand tour I think probably quite late on but wasn't Turner one of the young artists who went to went to Europe and sketched the landscape quite intensively Absolutely. Turner was very shaped by his time in Italy. He particularly loved the quality of light in Venice. And that's something that goes on to, as, as you know, form his work so much. Um, and then if we think about architects like Robert Adams, who was so influential in bringing in that neoclassical design, mm-hmm. along with other artists at the time, back to back to Britain, uh, he and his brother undertake an extensive period of travel across Europe, and particularly focusing on Italy. Takes me back to my undergraduate degree, thinking about various types of columns and capitals. And yeah. <laughs> Doric, Ionic and Corinthian. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, yeah, you got them all. <laughs> um, OK, so was this exclusively male? Because that is how I think it has been, the sort of idea of the Grand Tour has been perpetuated, that it is a sort of boys club. Was the opportunity available for women as well? I think it depends on how you define the Grand Tour in relation to cultures of travel in the 18th century. So um, this would be an area that scholars would debate amongst themselves. So I tend to define the Grand Tour quite narrowly because I see the Grand Tour as something that is specifically related as a finishing school of, of masculinity, very much tied to young, elite, privileged men who are being sent abroad to have a certain formative educational and masculine experience. 
And then I think alongside that, what you get in the 18th century is a real opening out of travel. So we've already mentioned um, architects and artists who go abroad for professional training, certainly overlapping in some areas of what young grand tourists are doing as well, but still different in focus. And then as you go through the 18th century, you get more and more um, older men and women um, and families start to travel. Um, so we've got an increasing amount of, of female travellers and female travel writers. Um, certainly by the end of the 18th century, they are um, prolific in the works that they're publishing and publish some of the most influential pieces of travel literature that we have. Think of the early 19th century, Charlotte Eaton and her Rome in the 19th century is the sort of travel book of uh, romantic literature. And then as well, um, particularly towards the end of the 18th and really going into the 19th century, you get more and more middle class. Um, families starting to travel as well initially in terms of domestic tourism within Britain but more and more taking the opportunity to um, to travel on the continent as well so what you see is the growth of what we would think of as, as the modern concepts of tourism as opposed to the grand tour if that makes sense I'm quite precise in my definition. Uh, I definitely know some uh, some of my colleagues would uh, would disagree with me and say it's all the grand tour. So that's something that we can discuss at length. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with you, and I think that there is seemingly there is there is definitely a kind of difference, and that idea of it being more specifically young that's young male demographic is what it's most what it is what it's most famous for, and I think there obviously must be something in that and. Which leads into your kind of main body of research around the Grand Tour, this idea of the male experience and and the idea that also the Grand Tour is quite a dangerous practice. It's not something that is, you know, it's it's not just a, a jolly. What is it about the Grand Tour that was dangerous? And why do you think that that was something that was, um, in a way, enhanced the experience? So I think the first thing to point out is the Grand Tour. So we've already talked a lot about... Italy. And I think when people think of the Grand Tour, one of the first things they think about is that particular Italian itinerary. But actually, the Grand Tour covered a lot of Western Europe. So they spend as much time going through France and the Netherlands, uh, the German principalities. Uh, They spend a lot of time in Vienna. um, They spend time in Switzerland. So before they reach Italy or uh, or after they finished Italy, they're they're travelling through the rest of Europe. And so part of what I'm doing in the book is trying to bring attention on what the Grand Tour is if we look beyond Italy as well. So I'm not trying to um, argue that the Italian itinerary isn't important. It's hugely important and so influential in British culture and British aesthetics. But yeah, I'm, I'm pointing out that there is a lot more to the Grand Tour than just that that kind of part that we all know. And in that, danger is really important. So in many ways, travelling in the 18th century completely sucked. Carriages were very likely to break. You're travelling over the Alps, so you're encountering lots of precipices. There's always a danger that somebody might want to rob you. There are various wars breaking out. There's opportunity to pick up all sorts of unpleasant illnesses, uh, malaria, plague is still hanging around in various formats. So in general, travel was seen as uncomfortable and um, and dangerous. And one of the points that historians make early on about the Grand Tour is that they travel in spite of danger. So they kind of grit their teeth and get through it because the things they want to do while they're traveling are more important. I remember coming across this argument quite early on in my academic career and thinking, 
I'm not quite so sure, because the way I, I found Grand Taurus talking about danger was really interesting. Either they were, they don't mention fear or they don't mention danger at all, or their accounts are very dominated by it. And so um, in thinking about how the Grand Tour is a formative process of masculinity, what I found more and more as I was looking into this is that actually, from the perspective of um, young elite men, the danger is part of the appeal. It's part of the way in which they test and refine and, and grow in their adult elite masculine identity. So it's, it's part of the test and the, the purpose of traveling is to encounter and overcome all of these discomforts and dangers in different sorts of ways. Yeah, which I suppose, you know, in some ways that's not dissimilar to now. But I do wonder, is that has that got, got something to do with the construct of service? during this period so service being more of a an active choice to go and serve in the in the army to go and fight do you think that it was because in a way that wasn't necessarily an expectation particularly for elite young men and so they had to I guess sort of whatever I get their thrills in some in some other way or would you say that that is it didn't really that didn't really connect so I think the military connection is really important and, and crucial to understanding what role danger plays in the Grand Tour. At this point, the elites still see themselves as a military elite, a service elite, whether or not they actually ever see a battlefield. Um, so they still perceive their identity as very much tied to the right to bear arms and the fact that they're not just political and civic leaders of the country, that they're the military ones as well. So... The statistics for elite entering and, and serving in the military is still um, high in the 18th century, not as high as they are in, in other countries, but still remains a kind of key area of employment for the for the elite. And what you find is that elite young men, whether or not they go into the military, still receive a military education. What I found with my research is that uh, the Grand Tour is actually a really important place in which they receive that education. So whilst they're attending the academies that I mentioned earlier, these spaces where they learn to become a polite gentleman they're learning how to ride and fence and dance and speak French but they're also learning the mathematics of fortifications um, military theory and also if you have a look at the education officers receiving at the time riding fencing and dancing are not just polite exercises they're military ones as well and so alongside that they're receiving that formal education but they are also they spend a lot of time on the grand tour going around military sites observing armies observing parade um, so learning from watching modern day armies in action essentially even to the extent of at times participating in battle themselves um, this would be an action called military volunteering um, so they would informally attach themselves to a continental army and, and go along with them and at times even take part in fighting as well yeah because am I am I right in thinking that this was around the time of the Napoleonic war and itinerant travel wasn't you know, it wasn't dissuade. People weren't dissuaded from from doing it. And I think, am I right in thinking that um, men, young men, are artists, people who are wanting to experience culture, were still able to travel into areas of conflict? And so, as you say, did that overlap with them? coming involved in some of these conflicts themselves? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. So I'm going to start a little bit earlier, if that's all right. <laughs> so the kind of the tradition of military volunteering uh, is probably its strongest in, say, the 17th century. And you find a lot of uh, Grand Taurus really 
very overtly expected to go and part, take part in that kind of conflict. And then we can see a, a fair amount in the early part of the 18th century. And then it sort of disappears. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, a lot of the theatres of war start to shift into a more of a colonial context. So something like the Seven Years' War, there is fighting on the, con- um, on the European continent, but quite a lot of it takes place in America. So that's less convenient for elite young men to go and take part in. You also get the professionalisation of the army. So it's a little bit more difficult to place a volunteer into these sorts of structures and so you do still get uh, young men volunteering but it's not quite so obvious and sometimes the language in which it takes place is kind of hides it a little bit and then what happens when you get up to the Napoleonic Wars you get a shift because essentially Napoleon decrees that any citizen, whether they're in the military or not, should be treated as the enemy. So for the first time, you get the large-scale internments of civilians. So this happens to um, the English. Uh, a lot of the um, English are rounded up and are placed in Verdun, um, a town where they're, they're kept for the duration of the war. So it changes the game slightly in that it really hardens the rule of who's considered a military threat and a military target. And that makes it interesting for travellers and and how they move across zones of conflict. You still get Grand Tourists travelling and they still might try and go through Europe, but often you find them going around the conflict instead. So if you think about Byron, he ends up going to Spain and then he goes to Greece and uh, through that kind of picks out a new route of travel for people to engage with. But alongside that, you also get the rise of military volunteering in a different, in a more formalised sort of way. So you do get a lot of young men um, saying that they're going to you know, sign up and go off and fight and uh, or go off to witness, say, the Battle of Waterloo. So you still get that military tourism in ways that sort of shift and change a little bit. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Yeah, it's a weird idea, isn't it? This idea of military tourism and sort of following battles as a sense of not entertainment, but inform like information or maybe entertainment. And that's something that I believe was quite common in this period. It was just it was it was almost like let's go and observe this great battle that's that's taking place. It's a little bit like I know this is earlier, but I'm aware that um, at Culloden, I think that there were people who came and literally just watched the battle take place. And I don't know. I mean, maybe that's something that, that that is that is just part of human nature and human interest. But just the idea that it's also with this comes hand in hand with going and looking at some really nice art as well. Yeah, <laughs> but I think that's why it's important, um, and it just shows the range of what's happening on the Grand Tour. That yes, it is everything from. Yeah, watching a battle through to admiring the Apollo Belvedere, and um, and that scale I think represents the the scale and the complexity of culture at the time. If we think about Waterloo, there's so many people who travelled in order to be near that conflict to witness it. I mean, the Duchess of Richmond's ball was interrupted by all the officers going off to fight, and I think. The Battle of Waterloo is particularly famous in literature and culture for that observing, but it has a much longer history. Isn't that? Isn't it also picked up in Vanity Fair? Yeah, they're, they're kind of following the soldiers who are going to, and it's, it's there's like parties and balls around this battle. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so I wanted to ask you, moving on to the idea of sort of memorialising the Grand Tour and and collecting and um, remembering it, what sort of things did did people take away from their experience of the tour? I mean, obviously, we know there were some um, quite important things that they took away um, and uh, brought back to museums here. But were there what were the more sort of personal anecdotes of the tour that, that were collected and gathered up? And am I right in thinking that, sort of leading into this, that there wasn't the British Museum created on the back of a grand tour? Um, so the British Museum is actually created off the back of um, the Sloan collection. And so that culture of collecting is very tied to the Grand Tour. But someone like Sloan was a, a professional, not an aristocrat. And he, he does travel widely, but he pulls together his collections, often actually more in, in conjunction with um, scientific discovery in the period. Things like Joseph Banks' Endeavour's Voyage, uh, Captain Cook and so on. But uh, yeah, so I mean... If you wander around London, you can see the most, of, or Edinburgh, where I am, you can see the most obvious import in collecting the Grand Tour, which is that um, architectural neoclassical taste. Um, any country home is is filled with the sculpture, with the paintings, um, all of that kind of aesthetic collection. But the Grand Tour, you find a lot of, like you say, sort of humbler things being collected or less tangible. So uh, an amazing array of books are being collected in every topic underneath the sun. 
as people go around battlefields, they might pick up things like buttons or um, uh, tokens from the, uh, the fallen soldiers, so kind of cabinets of curiosities. But in terms of archives, what you really find preserved are the letters and the diaries. So it's a fun area to research because the Grand Tour is such a status symbol within families. They really keep uh, the letters and the diaries well, well preserved. And so I think you're right. It's the idea of, of the stories um, that they can hand down and the ways in which they can use their stories and their learning and their experience as proof of the types of men that they've turned into, alongside other things like buying up continental fashions and coming back as as well-dressed young men or getting their Pompey Batoni portrait commissioned of the Grand Tour. But you find all sorts of stories being handed down or pieces of advice being handed down within families, and often they create their own intergenerational culture of the Grand Tour and what you do and how you do it because you'll have father, son and the son after all uh, within one century uh, undertaking this sort of travel and you find stories being told to um, people with sort of entertainment so one of my favourite ones is Sir Francis Bassett who he travelled in the 1770s and he didn't intend to be a military volunteer but he got sort of accidentally swept up into a battle when he was visiting one of the generals who was his friend in the field and um yeah, witnessed a kind of a turning point in the War of Bavarian Succession. And sort of 20, 30 years on, he's still telling this story to people who come to visit him. And it's really, even though he never goes on to really play any big military role, he uses it as proof of his bravery, of his courage, of his continental connections. So it's a good, uh, it's a good tale for him to assert things about himself. Yeah, so in a way, it's not just the experience isn't just a rite of passage. It's also a, a once in a lifetime experience for adventure in in many ways. And then, as you say, this cabinet of curiosities, because I think you can still you can still see these cabinets, which I'll ask you in a minute where you can look at them. But um, it, it's like a physical manifestation of of personal adventures and all of the little kind of relics that people have picked up in, in the way. Which I suppose, I mean, I'm a medievalist, so I something that is kind of coming up into my mind is like how far has this moved on from a sense of pilgrimage a similar sort of concept this idea of collecting and creating a sense of experience and identity alongside that no absolutely um this idea of uh i suppose to a certain extent relics definitely comes down and and actually you see that taking not a grand tour thing but a really interesting twist during uh, the french revolution people prizing out pieces of the Bastille door and holding on to them as uh, yeah talismans to do with these turning points in history and the idea of the longer heritage of um, travel as transformative and a way of solidifying things about yourself is really old so pilgrimage is a really good example of that we've got the renaissance peregrinatos the traveling for education but then we've also got things like the chivalric quest as well and and the grand tour pulls on all of those different things yeah yeah of course the chivalric quest and going off and fighting crusades and things i guess it's like oh, the same yeah. kind of idea and so the roman, the roman and greek uh, tales of odysseus yeah quite it's always this idea of needing to travel needing to experience that rite of passage and that sense of adventure it's 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 endemic to sort of humanity and you know you could say masculinity so where can people see examples and you talk about the architecture and, and if you go to cities like uh, as you say edinburgh london bath is a really good example where else can people look for physical manifestations of the experiences of the grand tour so people can see for themselves what people were 
what men were bringing back? Oh, that's a really uh, good example, a good question. Um, I think rock up in most country houses in Britain, you'll be able to find um, very good examples of that. Particularly, I would recommend somewhere like Compton Verney, because Compton Verney in Northampton has got a really good collection of works relating or depicting Vesuvius. Um, Vesuvius is the, the active volcano in the south of Italy um, in the city of Naples. Uh, and certainly in terms of my research, uh, Vesuvius is a really interesting one because grand tourists would go up and climb Vesuvius, um, partially in order to present themselves as uh, rational scientific gentlemen. So they would go off and observe the science of this particular natural phenomenon, partly to experience the sublime, but also very much tied to danger. So they would take the sort of uh, encounter with physical peril that they were looking for on the battlefield and then they transposed it to other places. So on the Grand Tour, they would undertake various hazardous sports. They started to climb mountains and glaciers. And then down in the south, where you can't climb a mountain, but you can encounter a volcano, they would use the volcano as a test of their of their courage. And so the paintings of Vesuvius, if you go, if you ever go and look at them, always pay attention to where the people are positioned. Because you'll find some which are very much in that sublime thing of a massive eruption taking place and people really far away watching that terrifying spectacle. But there's all sorts of other ones where they're much, much closer at times right at the foot of the volcano or maybe halfway up with with lava flowing down. And these are all meant to commemorate these these moments of encountering danger in often very beautiful uh, pieces of work as well. I could talk to you about this forever because then we like a whole the sublime is like a whole new genre that comes out of this, which I also love. But would you remind me of your remind me and and people who are listening to this of your book? So if people do want to learn a bit more about this, what's your book called? Uh, it would be my pleasure. So my book is called Danger, and <laughs> I've read the title wrong even as I'm looking at it. <laughs> Sorry. So my book is called Masculinity and Danger on the 18th Century Grand Tour. It's published by the University of London Press, and the best thing is you you can buy it if you if you go through that website. You can buy it in hardback or paperback or in digital form, but you can also download a PDF for free because it's an open access book. Oh, well, there you go. You don't, can't get better than that. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for having me. It was great. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.